As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at BTE Racing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in Sportsman Drag Racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss Chris Gerritsen. And this week, Jeff, Sarah, Big Jed, how are you? Luke, I'm well. I'm very well. Um, we, uh, we will talk about uh, the, the latter of those two names a lot during the show, as uh, he deserves to be talked about. But um, exciting show on tap. Um, there's a lot to discuss about the Great American Guaranteed Million Dollar Race and all the results and some uh, thoughts and ideas and feelings about the event. So... You know, looking forward to discussing that with everybody. But, man, I mean, the main thing that we need to talk about in this intro is it's, look, I don't, I need a kazoo, but it's show 200. I don't know if you were aware of that. It's episode 200. Hey, that was a much better. <laughs> I don't do a very good dragon, but my kazoo's not half bad. Your kazoo but, dragging away. <laughs> show 200, Luke. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, did you ever in your wildest dreams think we would be here? God, no. <laughs> well, I thought you might, but I thought surely you guys <laughs> get rid of me real early in this deal. 
we had high hopes. I don't think we ever thought it would go this far. Certainly, after I listened to episode triple zero, I never thought we would. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go back and listen to that. No, no, that's painful. Don't do that to yourself. <laughs> Particularly if you got earbuds. I'll be in the right, you'll be in the left. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, that was good stuff. Production skills. There's just full flex right there. I got this, guys. <laughs> uh, it's been a blast. It really has. I mean, we've uh, we've had some fun times, had some times where we probably created a little more controversy or, or ill feelings with people than we intended to. Um, the pot. Yeah, but uh, but you know we're the OG. There's a lot of there's a lot of podcasts out there about racing and things now, but we're the OG. Can we rename the show the OG Drag Racing Podcast? <laughs> we should. <laughs> we should. But it's been a good time. I've uh, I've made a lot of great connections. Heard from a lot of awesome listeners and enjoyed doing all these shows with with you and and producer Mark when. He come along, I guess, fairly early in the process. So. Yeah, producer Mark is a rookie. I mean, he's only done like 170 of these. Yeah, I was going to say we, we might need producer Mark to step in here and say where he joined the show. But uh, I knew it was going to be a very high number. Episode 27, I believe. Oh, I was close. 27. Yeah, it was really good. So 173 of these things. Really? Oh, yeah, you're still here. Can we make a note? Can we get the kazoo to come out at episode 223 to commemorate Mark's 200th episode? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> I'll get a kazoo. If, uh, I was able to, if I was able to get Jed's dragon last week, I think we can get a kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the dragon was bad. <laughs> Uh, no, no dragon this week. But as as you mentioned, Jed, we we spend the better part of the show uh, covering, recapping the Great American Guaranteed Million. We'll talk about the impressive and somewhat bizarre win for Jeff Sarah uh, and the story behind that. We talk about Nick Hastings' just robotic way that he goes about bottom ball racing so impressive and just all the good the bad the ugly the the feel-good stories the quick hitters everything from memphis close the show with a little bit of nhra talk but this is a long one so we won't take up any more of your time right now 200 cheers to us cheers to you thanks for listening let's jump right into it here's pj Where else would we start the show the week after the Great American Guaranteed Million than with the Great American Guaranteed Million? What a spectacle. What an event. Um, We've got a bunch to share here, Jed, and I think from a little bit um, different perspectives. Obviously, you were there, but you were there for a a period of time that was much more brief than you would have liked. Mm -hmm. So you took in a lot of this via the live feed, via the broadcast. Uh, I took in the vast majority of it from the racetrack. Um, so I'd be interested to get the varying perspectives there. 
I thought what we would do here is lead off the show with the, the nuts and bolts, the basics, like here's who won, here's who did what, and then kind of transition into what, in our view, were the biggest storylines from the Great American Guaranteed Million. Yeah, love it. I think that'd be a great idea. Like, um, definitely uh, a lot to talk about. <clears throat> Without question. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not living under a rock, you know that the lion's share of the guaranteed million dollar to win purse went to Pennsylvania with Jeff Sarah. Sarah wins it in a door car, a Chevy 2, which apparently is you have to drive if you want to win a million-dollar race in 2020. There are three. He was driving the Chevy 2 that belongs to Richard Duke. Uh, beautiful uh, tube chassis Chevy 2. A little bit different uh, different style car than, uh, than what Steve Sisko and Scotty Richardson drove to their respective victories, but going about the same speed. We'll, we'll dive deep into that. Sarah, with the final round victory over Todd Sensini, uh, the lone semifinalist was off the foot, Nick Hastings. That's a story in and of itself. We'll get to that. Uh, quarterfinalist, J.R. Barclay, Ron Lane, Hunter Patton. We'll touch base on each of them as well. Uh, the main discussion, the, uh, the split happened with 22 cars remaining in the million. Uh, I don't even have the detailed numbers. We won't get into details there. But if you got to 22, you got paid. Um, in addition to the main event, the Great American Guaranteed Million was originally scheduled to host three separate 40 granders. Uh, you're probably also aware that uh, a hurricane basically came through Memphis. The remnants of a hurricane came through Memphis and halted racing really for the better part of two full days. Um, so one, uh, we got one 40 grander in, combined the other two into one 80 grander. $40,000 race was won by Paul Rich over Jeremy Jensen, all Tennessee final round. And then the, uh, the combined 80 grander peeps Pennington, who was one of our picks to win the million. So we, we kind of came through there, Jed, we were just a day early <laughs> or an event early. It was really like three days early after the rain. Uh, but peeps got the win over Will Holloman. Uh, Holloman, by the way, put on a show in that 80 grander had the same car doubled at six, which was eighth round, you know, 450 plus car event. Uh, and then as a side note there, the only, uh, the only person that Will Holman lost to was Peeps Pennington, but he did it twice. Peeps got him at six, Peeps took the bite of the final, and then Peeps beat Holloman in the final. So the last two times that Peeps Pennington staged, beside an opponent, that opponent was Will Holloman. Pennington got the better end of both of those matchups. Pretty impressive night for both of them. Yeah, Peep Show uh, doing what he does and getting that big win. And, and Luke, as you talked about, so they ran the 40, they ran the 80, um, so on Wednesday, they couldn't get the 40 completed, um, had their share of challenges there and decided to push that on into Thursday and seeing what Hurricane Delta was creating out there for them. They knew there was going to be some weather challenges. So they decided to finish the 40 and the 80 in conjunction, actually started the 80 and finished the 40 all in conjunction, with one another, one run, one run, one round of one race and one round of the other back and forth and what looked like a, a somewhat jumbled to me from the outside looking in but as we were heading up that way Thursday evening I was keeping up with it JJ was watching on the live feed in the motorhome and man it went really well I, I was very impressed 
it was two o'clock in the morning when they finished the 80, but I was really impressed that, that they were able to, to get that plan run to completion, get all of the, the 40 grand business behind them so they could get started Friday with the million and do as much as they could. And obviously seeing what Saturday was presenting was going to finish it on Sunday. Um, I thought it was a gutsy call uh, and they made it work for the 40 and 80. And then obviously the weather didn't cooperate as it looked like it would on Friday and things kind of went to a different plan and a, a you know a struggle plan from there. But we all know it started Sunday, finished Monday, and it was wonderful. But I, I heard a lot of second guessing for the plan they had, and that was real easy to do considering that. Friday didn't go the way it was quote unquote supposed to go, but I think they still made the right call based on the information they were working with. And I, I think, you know, given the, it had the weather worked the way it was forecasted, which hardly ever happens. Um, this thing possibly could have been even better, but uh, for all intents and purposes, I, I believe the guys did as great a job as they possibly could with the cards they were dealt. Yeah, I agree from a, from a racer standpoint and we'll get into this a little bit later. Like there was a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot. There was a fair amount of negative feedback running through the pits. And I just think, a you can't make everyone happy and B when everything gets elevated, entry fee, purse, etc. Everybody's just a little bit more on edge and looking for something that's quote unquote wrong. To your point, um, Thursday when they when they rolled out the, uh, the the plan basically to to complete the forty and eighty in the same day and alternate rounds, I was skeptical that that could all happen in one day, and it went seamlessly. As you mentioned, it was a late night, but that that went far better than I I anticipated, and, and they they put that together in a really impressive way. And as you mentioned, they fought a lot of challenges throughout the week. Uh, weather related and and some other and it's easy now looking back on exactly the way everything went to play armchair quarterback and say woulda coulda shoulda but by and large I agree I, I I think that they did an excellent job with the event I don't think that the spectacle that is the guaranteed million was really diminished in any way I do think it would have been far cooler had there not been a hurricane and everything would have been able to go off like per the flyer, per the schedule, just because I know the, some of the, the plans that they had for the, the atmosphere, the prestige, and it just would have felt different late rounds in the million. If there's a 40 grander the next day and everyone's still there and it's exactly. in the daylight, you know what I mean? It just, it would have had a, a, an even more uh, electric atmosphere to it. But given the situation, I, I feel like the race went as well as it possibly could have. And by all indications, and again, uh, we'll circle back to this, and I'll, I'll get your take, you know, kind of watching more online as it, as it went down the, down the line. I feel like the atmosphere, the feel, the panache, so to speak, of this race for the viewer at home, I, I think was like second to none. Uh, I don't think that got diminished one bit. So we'll, we'll touch more on that as we go. Let's transition into the biggest stories from the weekend because last week following the Spring Fling Million, we spent 20 minutes singing the praises of one Scotty Richardson. 
equally deserving Jeff Sarah's win at Memphis. Jed, I don't, I honestly, I was there. I wasn't there for the end. I watched most of this unfold and I don't completely understand exactly the, the story and what happened. Like at some point we will have Jeff Sarah on the show to, to maybe shed some light on this. But from my vantage point, Jeff Sarah winning that race was about the damnedest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it was it was very impressive, uh, Luke. I mean, Jeff has all the tools in the bag, and we both watched him win a lot. And he's done it different ways. He Jeff is, uh, and I'm trying to put the right. I don't want to say sneaky or tricky, but he's he's crafty. He's a very crafty racer, and he he has the ability to win many different ways. But this was probably as challenging a win as he's ever had. And ironically turned out to be the biggest win he's ever had. But um, the, the car, now this is a great race car. So if Richard Dukes is hearing this, I want to make sure he and everybody else understands. Jeff Sarah was in one of their best race cars in the pits. No matter how big the race is, every time it shows up, one of the best cars there. This thing's fast. It's mean. Well, it had an engine issue and broke something in the engine. Scotty Richardson uh, let them use an engine and the combination with the converter and everything else gear and all that they had with it being that far down on horsepower created some challenges and the car uh, did not do exactly as planned. So uh, Luke, you can, you can continue from there, but you know, it was definitely um, not the best race car in the pits with the combination that, that it had in it come race day. 100%. So again, my details on this are, are hazy, sketchy. So for that, I apologize to your earlier point, Jeff Sarah winning the guaranteed million is no surprise. Like that dude is unbelievable. Okay. And yeah. I think, I think he's, he's elevated his, uh, you know, his brand, his reputation to a point that, that, that his name coming across the screen in the final or, or in the results is, is, is no shock. Right. I, I, a few years ago, like we did our top 25 and I don't think he was included. I remember voting for him. Like he was on my ballot, but I don't think he was in the top 25. I think that would change if we did it a week ago. I, I feel like he's won enough now. He's got the reputation. He is amazing. Um, at the finish line. Like he does things that most racers don't even attempt. I, I mentioned it on, on last episode. Like he's, he's one that will hold a bunch. I, he doesn't seem to care if he's faster car, the slower car. Like he, he, he does things at the finish line that, that most racers are not capable of and or would not attempt. In, in saying that I have seen him do those things at the finish line in a car that was quick, like, um, Maybe not the fastest car in the class, but there's nobody just barreling down on him, right? He's typically doing this in like a 520 door car or a 450 drag strip. Yep. <laughs> to your point, I, I actually matched up with Jeff Sarah driving Richard Duke's Chevy 2 on Wednesday or Thursday, one of the early days of the event. And it was on that very run that it burned a piston. He went half a second over. He was dialed 548, I believe. And uh, the next day, I just saw Jeff was doubled in Steve Withrow's Dragster, and I assumed that was the end of the Chevy 2. Well, at, to your point, borrowed motor, stuck it in the Chevy 2, and he's racing again. But it is 
I don't know what the motor that was in. It was a big, small block, fast, small block. So it's just like a conventional head 383 that they put in with the same converter that Richard Duke told me in the staging lanes. He's like, it's way too tight with the same carburetor that Richard told me in the staging lanes is way too big. He's like, it, it's, it's not really, it's not, there's nothing right about the combination. And it certainly appeared throughout the million that there was nothing right in the combination. Like it didn't look like Jeff was holding a lot, which is not um, necessarily outside of his wheelhouse. But I don't. I did not get the impression that he had really had any idea what he could run. Right? We're just yeah. we're holding a lot. There's no other choice. And so as the race winds down, I I knew this just from that conversation with Richard. And then I'm watching just the scoreboards and the live feed as we're on our way home. And I'm like, it's obvious that this car is not what you would typically think you need to win a race like this. Right? And and it's so funny. Well, I'll, I'll get to that later. But. <clears throat> So Jess asked me, we're riding home. There's, I don't know, 11 or 22 cars left. She says, well, who's your pick to win? And, um, and I, I picked Chris Bear. Like we had talked about that on the, on the podcast the week prior. Like he's the guy that makes the runs you need to make at Memphis to win. And she, she questioned me right then. She's like, you're so high on Jeff Sarah. Like I'm a big Jeff Sarah fan. She's like, I'm surprised you're not picking Jeff. And I said, I don't think he can win in that car in its current form. Like, it's one thing to beat up on the door cars holding, I don't know, like five to 10. It's one thing to race door cars that are similar speed to you. And Jeff crushes the tree and he's unbelievable at the finish line. But it's to win the race, he's got to be dragsters. And you're in a 6.0 car, 5.90 car, whatever it can go, dialed up that much. That's hard to begin with. And that's the difference between this Chevy 2 and say the Chevy 2 that Steve Cisco or Scott Richardson won in, like those appear to be more back half door cars that sit up high. You can run the left lane and turn around and look out the back glass and watch that dragster come up on you. The car that Jeff was driving is a full tube chassis, funny car cage. Like it's a by God race car that's not really built to yeah. those. It is <laughs> backwards. It's, it's a race car. And I. Well, he can't even see those dragsters coming. Like, how do you hold six when you don't know what's coming? Obviously, and and if you don't know, you're holding six. Right. <laughs> even more impressive. So that was my point with Jess. I'm like, I just I, as much of um respect as I have for his skill set and his talent, immense talent. I don't think he can win this race in that car, and he proved me very, very wrong. Um, <laughs> it was like just an incredible display of Jeff's talent and obviously some really timely breaks specifically late in the race. But what, what's so cool about this to me, and I know we talked about this after Steve Sisko won. We talked about this, Jed, after Scotty won a week ago. I love to see, you know, a, a, those two specifically, like a, a more budget quote unquote operation win a race of that stature. Richard Duke's car is not a budget car. Like that's a, that's a high dollar race car. But I guess what I, my takeaway here is we come into these events, you, me, and the other 400 plus entrants in this race thinking, okay, we've got every T has to be crossed. Every I has to be dotted. We have to be so ultra precise to win this race because inevitably I'm going to have to beat a 6,000th package somewhere along the way, right? And those are the runs that have to make run after run after run. And to do that, my car's got to be perfect. 
and I've got to be, you know, just as good. In two of the, th the, the, the two richest races of the year, Steve Sisko won in a car. We had him on. It was broke. And for the vast majority of that race, he had no idea what he could go. Jeff Sarah won in a car that wasn't broke, but I don't think he had any idea what he could go. And it speaks to the attitude of both of those guys to just say, I'm going to figure out how to get this done. Like a lot of us, myself included, would I, I would get into my own head like I'm at such a disadvantage here. I would either kind of convince myself that I can't win, I'm not supposed to win, or I would try to drive so far over my head trying to make up for that car that I think I would inevitably make a mistake. And neither <laughs> of those guys allow that to happen. Like Cisco told us when he was on, it's like I just I just had this feeling like I wasn't going to lose. I didn't know how I was going to pull it off, but I was going to pull it off. And I would assume that Jeff Sarah had a similar outlook, and that to me is what's so impressive about each of their wins. I agree, hundred percent. That's uh, I mean, that, to hear that two people won with basically broke race cars in the two highest paying races that's ever been held, you know, it says a lot about their talent. It says a lot about catching breaks at the right time, but. Um, the, I think the, the biggest part of it is both of them had the confidence yes. to go win regardless of the circumstances or the situation they were in, the challenges they were facing. And, and I'm with you, Luke. I, I mean, if I'm even having any kind of hiccup, right. I, I'm, you know, it's all in my head and I'm, I've convinced myself I can't win here on Saturday night at Holiday Beach, much less. The freaking race pays a million dollars or more. So uh, it just, it, it's a testament to their mental strength and the, obviously their ability to wheel a race car. So quite impressive. To, that three door cars have won the millions, all Chevy twos, all running that time, that, that similar time. And two of those were broken. And one guy was um, somewhat forgotten, even though he's, possibly the greatest to ever do it. He still was somewhat forgotten. So excellent, excellent stories in all three millions. And it's just fitting that Jeff Sarah went out and did what he did in the, the guaranteed million to, to get his biggest payday and win in a, in a race car that probably less than 2% of the entrants would have even decided to race it, much less went out there and did what he did. I'd, I'd put the I'd put the figure even smaller than that. Like, <laughs> in summary, the three biggest winners of 2020, the I think by far and away unquestioned best car on the day of the event was a car that Scotty Richardson literally put together like three weeks before going to Bristol. <laughs> oh, I mean, just put that in perspective. Yeah, that's crazy. I you know I do have a Nova. I mean, I wonder if it's a Nova thing or does it have to be a Chevy too? It's, I, I mean, I don't we'll I, find out next week. Yeah. Good point. Good point. We'll find out at the OG. It's uh, I think it's gotta be what between like a 64 and a 67. Yeah. seems to be <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> it's crazy. That's what, uh, cause Jess, even though she's got a dragster these days, she's a, she's a door car girl at heart. So she's trying to figure out each round, like how, uh, how a door car is going to win and you know how they've got the better odds and i'm like babe 
there's four dragsters left in two door cars, and one of the door cars is foot breaking. They don't have the better odds, right? But yet, yeah, door car <laughs> yeah, wins the biggest race. So. Speaking of the one that was foot breaking, if I don't want to gloss over Todd Sensney, we'll get back to Todd, um, runner up, huge payday, probably the the most memorable um, performance of an illustrious career. Like I mean, Todd's done everything in racing. He's been he's won national events. He's finished in the top ten. He's won a myriad of big dollar bracket races. Like he's a he's a guy that may not be a national name. Like his show doesn't get on the road a bunch, but if you if you have been at a race with Todd Sensney, you know how capable Todd Sensney is of getting exactly where he got. So not to gloss over Todd, but I think the story uh, number two, right, behind Jeff Sarah and what he was able to accomplish has got to be nasty Nick Hastings. Jed, this is footbreak. Footbreak is your wheelhouse. I'll let you take over. I was, uh, I mean, I've been impressed by Nick Hastings for years uh, he, he elevated himself in my mind with his performance in Memphis. Yeah, Luke, obviously Nick is no stranger to big money final rounds. And certainly when there's a bottom bulb race or a, a component to a big race that has bottom bulb involved, Nick is a, is a player. He hits top very well. Uh, he's done his share, went on top, but he's just on another level on the bottom. I mean, how is that uh, a, that he developed? Like, he does hit the top very well, but why? Like, why bother? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you if you look at his his run sheets, I mean, it shows a level of consistency on the bottom that is unmatched. I mean, he's just, he's just that good. He, he does it for a living, and it shows. He's, uh, he's not just out here racing, hoping for big checks. He's, he's out here doing it at a very high level and, and has mastered his craft. Um, you know, Nick just don't make a lot of mistakes. He did turn it red in the semis. Uh, there was a lot on the line for that run. And, you know, he, uh, I've heard him talking afterwards and said, you know, just, it was just right. The tree got the right amount of shade on it. And he said, I should have compensated for it. And I'm like, wow. I mean, that's just the level he's on. He changed his front tires after he made a run or two early in the week because he didn't like to roll out so now don't don't leave a couple of hundred rpms harder don't uh get it a little further in the beams don't do any of that he's going to change front tires now luke you have to change your front tire it's probably about five thousandths an inch in circumference be my guess you you probably know better than i but that's probably fair so how what, how much can you change your reaction times? But I mean, I'd have to go to skateboard. If I'm not hitting the, the tree, I'd have to put skateboard wheels on the front. Call up Chris Garrett. But he might have been 20, 22, and said, you know what? No, I need to change a two inches smaller tire, so my spot's going to be 10 or 12. He's just that good. I mean, that, there's no... If I'm 22, I'm thinking, I just need to bow up on a little better. But he probably went out there and was 20 to 25 and went, no, something wrong with this rollout, and I know how to fix it. I've got my, my short tires in the trailer, and I'll put them on. He's just that good. It's, it's simply another level that most of us can't reach. And look, this bottom bulb field was the nastiest I've seen. I've never it, 
and anything like that. The great 48 was unbelievable. It was ridiculous. And the, the, the reactions and the dead on runs and the total packages those guys were putting down was incredible. Nick went to every no box final for the, for the week. I mean, everyone they had, he went to it and he, he finally won the one that he would have chosen if you told him he was just going to win one. And he got by one of the best I've ever seen do it. And that's Lucas Walker. Luke was, Lucas was four red dead zero. Uh, so it ain't like he was laying down chump change over there. And Nick was going to have obviously a, a, maybe an insurmountable challenge to if, if Luke goes a few thou later, but just goes to show that a Lucas Walker that is at the top of the game realizes Nick's on another level, and I can't just go out there and be what I've been. I've got to step on it a little bit, and it cost him a few thou. Um, so Nick Hastings is incredible. Uh, his level of consistency and focus and just going out there and doing his job is unmatched on the bottom. Now, I say all that. The run that he and Scotty had, both of them, uncharacteristically both of them hit the tree very well scotty on the top nick on the bottom uncharacteristically i think both of them went three above um which is an overdrop for both of them uh, you know i'm sure neither one of them wanted to light the scoreboard up three above and leave either one of those opponents that much room at the finish line but nonetheless you know it just shows that even going three above, Nick's going to go down there and just take a little. And if somebody leaves him some room, he catches drops. He rolls them through nicely when they just set up tight. They just He's got all the tools, the focus, and the talent. And he's young, Luke. I mean, it ain't like he just got to the top of his game and we're going to see a, a decline. If anything, he's only going to get more focused and better because he's so young, still got so many good years in him. That's it's a scary. A, yeah, it's really depressing. That's what it is. <laughs> I just, I, I, I was not uh, on the starting line or by a speaker, uh, and I, I didn't, I haven't seen any actual live feed numbers from the from the weekend. But I'm telling you, for four days, every time that I heard Nick Hastings' stage, he was either double o nine or ten on the tree. I mean. <laughs> It's not, it never like pushing it, never red or on the verge of red. I, I know he had some low double O's as well, but I'm telling you every time I heard him, nine or 10 and never late seemingly like just solid, consistent, maybe nine or 10 and either take a little bit or go dead on beat me. And that's hard to beat. That's hard to beat if you got a delay box. <laughs> yeah, it is. So uh, it's just so and to advance through that field of 48, to the no box final each day. I realized Nick was driving two cars. So he's double entered that, that doubles the chances, but that field was so stacked and so ridiculous. I, I almost think that making that final all three days is even more impressive than foot breaking your way to three in the million. I know that it does, it's not as lucrative, but I think it's as impressive. Let's focus specifically on the million. He gets through that 48 car, no box field, as you mentioned, a win in the final over Lucas Walker. Uh, that final was the round of the split. So both he and Lucas are getting paid at 22. Uh, at that point, like, there's two ways to look at making it to the split, right? You, you are going to go home with a lot of money, right? I mean, the, just for reference, 
there was they had over one point two million dollars to split twenty two. <laughs> so ridiculous. If you're listening at home, they had a little over one point two million dollars to split at twenty two cars. Okay, so everybody got paid. So on one hand, hey, no matter what, I'm going home with a chunk of money. On the other hand, every Winlight literally minimally doubles the amount of money that you take home. So there is, while there is some, there, there, there might be a part of you that says, whew, I'm getting paid. There is another part of you that has to realize, I will never again likely have the opportunity to race one round for, I don't know, $30,000. That, by the way, if you win the next round, you stage for $60,000. The next round, you know what I mean? Like it just keeps, it's exponential. Just to put into perspective what they had to work with at 22 cars, if they split it 22 ways, and they didn't, but if they said, you know what, just all 22 of us leave right here with our cut, their cut would have been $55,818 a piece. Yeah. That's how much money they had. <laughs> it's stupid. I can't even wrap my head around it, right? No. Put yourself in, in the casing shoes. You advance through the Pro 48. You've won now the first round of the split. You've doubled your money once. Okay, now you're going to mix in with the cars you know, that, that can use a delay box. Most people tend to think that's an advantage. And at that round where you get mixed in, we're just going to pair you up with uh, a guy by the name of Scotty Richardson that may or may not be the best that's ever done it. Good luck. Okay. Hastings, double O, take double O, win that round. Come back around now. Okay, now we're going to pair you with J.R. Barclay, who's one of the fastest dragsters here. Oh, you haven't raced anybody all weekend dialed faster than 550? Here's 448. <laughs> Nick says, okay, well, I'll just lay down five total, or whatever he was, like the sub, sub 100 package at six to roll into the semifinal matchup with Jeff Sarah. Like, it's just beyond impressive. And then... In that semifinal matchup, to your point, this is another interesting discussion that we can have, Jed. They're dialed close. I, I want to say Hastings is dialed 610 and Sarah's dialed 605 or something. They're within a few hundredths of a second. Nick's 5,000th red. Jeff Sarah's 18 red behind him. If that is the semifinal at Bristol with true start in effect, the outcome is different. And Nick Hastings is in the final. Just an interesting... I don't know, argument for or against, depending on what side of the, the coin you're on. But it's just interesting that in back-to-back -back weeks, that particular round would have changed the outcome, would have changed, I mean, you're talking, there's like, I don't know exactly how the split fell down, but I, there's six figures difference between semi and runner-up. I'm confident saying that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I've seen a lot of discussion about it online already and a couple of people have asked me about it through text and whatnot. And, you know, I, I love True Start. I think it accomplishes what the timing system has needed for quite some time. But we've raced without it for so long. I'm really neutral on it. Luke, I, I, I can live with it either way as long as I know which way it goes. Um, you know, I probably would feel a lot different about it right now if I were Nick Hastings. <laughs> sure. I'd probably say every race needs true start. But from my position, I'm neutral. Really doesn't matter to me which way it goes. But, you know, when you're talking about million-dollar paydays on the line and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars from run to run, 
I don't know. It, it, it would seem like that would have been a good place for true start. I think you could make the argument either way. Um, cause like I say, it's, it's what we grew up on. And to your point as a competitor, um, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily have a preference. Um, as long as you know, up front, right. That's fine. I will as say that I'm going six forties in a Vega for the most part. Like I'm a fan of true start cause I'm going to leave first a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. But no, from a, from an overall standpoint, I get where you're coming from. I just have this feeling that we're going to look back 20 years from now and everything everywhere you go is going to have some form of true start. And we're going to look back and say, what the hell were we doing? Like that didn't even make sense. <laughs> we're determined that was fair. You know what I mean? Like I agree. You say that's, that's how we came up racing. Like that's commonplace. But I do think the true start is in a vacuum, like a better, more fair setup that I think eventually will be adopted everywhere. And like I said, I just think we'll look back and go, yeah, that, okay. Like that's evolution, but that, that, that wasn't our best decision. Steve Taylor was at what three decades ahead of this. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. Drag race 2000. That was, a, <laughs> that was his, his idea, you know, and, and it made a lot of sense then and it's come to fruition now. And uh, as you say, probably 10 to 20 years from now, Every timing system will be utilizing some form of it. All right, let's switch gears. We talked Jeff Sarah. We talked Nick Hastings. The next bullet point that I wanted to hit on is, is I don't know, this might come off as, as a little different, a little interesting. Let me explain myself. Excluding the Pro 48, which seemingly was just haymaker after haymaker after haymaker for five days. The Great American Million was a lot sloppier than I had anticipated. We actually talked about this on the last show. And I had said the way that Bristol was won will not be the way that Memphis is won. We talked about how tricky a place is Bristol can be to get dialed, how it plays more into the finish line driver's hands. And I said, Memphis won't be like that. Memphis will be a bloodbath. Memphis is a place where it's just easy to make good runs. And it's going to be to win the race. You're going to have to beat, at least somewhere along the way, you're going to have to beat a sub-10 package. You're just going to have to line up a, a 3,000 package that beats a 6,000 package or something like that. And by and large, that's not what we saw. It, it, there, was, there were pockets where it got really brutal. Uh, the one, and, and I know Jake made, made light of this in the moment and, and highlighted it. Uh, Jake Hodge on the mic, fifth round of the million was pretty much top to bottom nasty. But there was just a lot of slop. Like there was a lot of poor reaction times. There was uh, a lot of struggle to, to go dead on. And I guess you could come up with a lot of um, potential reasons for that. Uh, looking back on it now, like, again, the weather played a role, not just in, in the, the conditions, but also in the, the structure, the schedule of the race. Because if you remember, if this all went to plan, we were going to get a time trial the day of the million run first round and the re-entry round and then get a time trial the next morning prior to round two. So it's kind of a time trial fest. Like everybody should know what they're going to go. It's going to get brutal. Well, due to weather, we didn't get either of those time trials. So first round was blind. And then for a lot of people, second round, like you lifted first round, you know exactly what you could go. You know what I mean? There's a little bit more margin for error there. Um, obviously the weather, in addition to causing a, a, massive delay in the race um created its own struggles for getting dialed as well like particularly everybody bounced around a lot like we've got 
So Jessica's car was on alcohol. I think it, it was very predictable, but it moved like six hundredths over the five days, right? Just due to weather swings. Mm-hmm. And typically alcohol cars just don't do that. You know what I mean? Like they just run the same number. Even my Vega on alcohol and it, I was really impressed with it. I think its total variance was more than three hundredths. So it was just, it wasn't just easy to settle in on a number and go, I'm going low data. Um, there was a fairly, I want to say like, um, huge but significant and honestly uncharacteristic for a facility the uh, the magnitude of memphis and a race the magnitude of this there was a significant lane difference which you just don't see very often anymore for whatever reason like i had it when i would go to the right i would put in seven thousands like i had it seven ish tight and slow on the right which isn't a ton um compared to what i'm used to say growing up but it's probably more lane difference than i've had anywhere this year and given the limited number of time runs, you know, like you do, it's not like you got to make a whole bunch of runs in each lane unless you were, say, double entered or, or went a bunch of rounds. So I think that played a role. Um, and there were just, um, just variables, which you, you put all of those together, variables, which I'm a fan of. Like, I don't like the bloodbath, you know, as a, as a driver. Like, I don't want sure. to stage knowing, hey, you have zero margin for error. You have to be better than five total. Like, I, I like it when there's like a, a film of oil on the racetrack or we got a blind run and the, the DA just moved 2,000 feet. Like, I think that plays into my skill set. So I am not complaining at all. It's just not what I expected to see at all. And it's interesting now to look back and say, okay, well, the winner of the race is like the complete polar opposite of what I said would win the race a week ago. The winner of the race was holding a 10th on some rounds, driving the lights out of the finish line. Jeff Sarah drove the lights out of both ends of the racetrack. But I never thought you would win that race at that facility without like a precise combination of if you weren't necessarily going dead on wide open, you knew where low dead on was. And I did not get the impression that Jeff Sarah knew where low dead on was most of the event. No, and I bought into that as well. And look, looking at the weather prior to Hurricane Delta disrupting it, it you know, the weather patterns look very consistent, look like you know, the, the highs and lows are going to be about 13, 14 degrees apart. And, you know, you'd never really see the lows. You'd see the highs. So you, you're thinking a 10-degree weather change from start to finish. And, you know, it definitely is a is a great racing surface. So you think everybody's going to be exactly like you said. But, man, it was interesting. When I, I started watching uh, Wednesday night just uh, to check out the action, see what was happening, and I picked it up in door cars. And I think it was round two, Luke. And it was just consistent two aboves and three aboves. And even when somebody was red, you know, a car was two above or three above. I'm like, what in the world's going on? Watched for about 30 minutes before finally Caroline McCarty went dead on in the wagon. So uh, I'm texting with, you know, my buds that are up there. And they said, it's unbelievable. Just like track still good. Everything's fine. But. Once the sun went down, the door cars slowed up two to three hundred. You know, the dragsters got a lot closer. Obviously, they got the news. They got the memo. But, you know, that's a, that was a challenge, obviously, that a lot of people wasn't able to overcome. And then, as you said, um, you know, this other variables, the, the tree was a little long. Um, I seen a few people let go on nothing. I seen a few people let go and grab again and cause some pretty poor reaction times. And, you know, sometimes you just flat missed it. Just got you a 30 or 40 ball because of the long tree. And I think, um, you know, that 
was a big challenge for a lot of people early. Maybe they adjusted late, but just variables like that, it did cause the racing to not be nearly as tight as we expected, except for the bottom bulb racers. Yeah, it did. They, really did. they didn't give a crap about any of that stuff. <laughs> I will say, I'm interested to hear your thoughts too. Do you think an element of this, and I guess this would be um, exclusive to the, the million dollar main event, do you think that the stakes impacted that at all? Almost definitely. Most definitely. I tend to think so too. And, and the argument against that is at the SFG 1.1, like that was pretty nasty. Like the, you mean, I just think of Billy Swain's runs and Jeff Sarah was in late in that race too. And Shane Carr, like the runs that those guys were making were sub 10 repeatedly, um, you know, for similar stakes. I do think just from a, a psychological standpoint, this was a little bit different, not in terms of the money. Obviously, the stakes were incredibly high. But the weather pushing everything back to where, okay, this is the last chance of the weekend, right? Now that the million is – so if you've got a big tab, you've got to overcome it in the million, which, by the way, if you get into late rounds, is more money than any of us have ever seen or the majority of us have ever seen, um, much less raced for. And the fact that we have been now just sitting idle – for two days essentially preparing for it like i just wonder if that didn't play into it to some level it had to there's no doubt it had to and um you know I, I think although a lot of the the racers that were there you know they were there all week and they seemingly they have all the spare time and free time that they could possibly want and need there was a a large portion of that field that was supposed to be somewhere Monday um, or was planning a Tuesday morning early arrival at work or something. And that kind of stuff still, it weighs on you. I mean, you're, you're thinking, Oh crap. Now here I've committed a real week or more to this event and uh, I'm supposed to be at work or I'm supposed to be somewhere else. And now I'm here racing. So, you know, I got to make this pay off. And yeah, I think all those things, way on people's mind not necessarily while they're staging but enough during your time at the race that it can affect your focus and and ability to go out and perform at a high level yeah and i uh, there's just there's only so much mental space to go around you know what i mean even subconsciously i think some of that gets eaten up so i think that plays a small role as well i had a few quick hitters we can batter bat around a little bit jed i just felt like there were so many and i know we're going to miss several but there were so many awesome stories from the week. I wanted to, to touch base on a few of them. Uh, top one on my list. How about Ron Lane? Basically comes out of drag racing retirement. Dude ain't raced in two years. Yeah. And just rolls down to six in the million, takes home 50 plus thousand dollars. That was impressive. Very. <laughs> uh, speaking of the split, we said 22 cars, very familiar names, a lot of very familiar names, I guess has to be expected. There's, there's probably 450 familiar names that entered that race. But I thought it was interesting, all three of the last three standing from Bristol a week prior, that's Scotty Richardson, Nick Folk, Kyle Coltrera, they all made the split again a week later at Memphis. So there's an element of like the rich get richer, but I just think there is something to knowing that you can do it at that level on that stage, having that reinforced, you know, literally eight days ago. Um that playing into the confidence and the, the whatever to, to get to that point again. Racing uh, on house money. Don't, 
don't hurt things either, Luke. <laughs> a good point. When your tab was covered a week prior to getting to the race, feels pretty good. Yeah, that helps. Hunter Patton, Big Jed. Not only mm. deep into the split, Hunter rolled down to six. Uh, our, our regular listeners will know that one of your bold predictions for this three-week stretch was that Hunter Patton would not win one of the million-dollar races, which if you had any other name in that prediction, that's not a bold prediction. But given the season that Hunter Patton has won, it feels like, okay, well, he's just supposed to put the cherry on top here by winning the biggest race of the year. How nervous were you? when Hunter rolled down to six. And honestly, like, it, at least in terms of name recognition, is pro- he's probably the favorite with 450, but he's probably the favorite at six, right? Yeah, most definitely. And uh, <laughs> you know, I knew I made that pick. And again, as I said on the last show, Hunter, you know, he's given me that kind of wry smile as I've seen him, but we haven't had an opportunity to talk. But understand, that's why it was a bold prediction, is because Hunter especially given the results he's had over the last 12 months or so was a likely choice to go out and win one of these. So that's why it was a bold prediction. It wasn't what I wanted to happen. It's just a bold prediction. I was making saying that something that's likely to happen won't happen. So I was pulling for Hunter. I definitely want to see him as I've stated a couple of times. I want to see him give me some shut up juice and, uh, and show me that, that he can get it done on that million dollar stage and, um, you know, he, he come up a little short there, but it was another great performance on his part. And Luke, I don't need to necessarily plug the, uh, Larice insurance group here, but, um, I did see where Hunter won $2,500 from them for being their customer that went the most round. So even when things don't go perfectly for Hunter, they seem to go really well. That's BS. They should give that to somebody that lost and bought back and lost again. Like, hey, <laughs> come on, Larice, stupid. <laughs> that was a really cool deal. Those guys are heavily involved, man. I thought that was awesome. Far be it from me to uh, to accuse you of rooting against anyone, Jed. I know that that's not the case. I I would have. I'll, I'll admit, I had a rooting interest at six just because I wanted to get the feedback. Yeah. I wanted to hear the winner circle interview because I know that whether I don't, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, misogynistic enough to think that Hunter Patton listens to the show, but somehow this got back to him. Right. And I just want oh, yeah. words out of his mouth to be where you at Jed. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, uh, like when Scotty called out Ryan Harum in his winner circle <laughs> at Bristol, uh, I, I would have liked to have gotten that call out from Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> so 22 cars remaining let's say we'll go back to the beginning of the split we talked about folk richardson coltrera obviously hunter Patton. another familiar name in that split conversation how about steve cisco shows up and bows up when it pays a million guaranteed uh in the split at both uh guaranteed millions in 2020 that's an impressive accomplishment and, and scotty's car scotty's car they're at the rich and scotty's in it <laughs> and scotty's engine wins the <laughs> Wins the race. I mean, it's pretty good to be Scotty right now. Yeah, it's a good day to be Scotty. All right. Um, one of our picks from last week, we mentioned Chris Bear. Uh, not only was Chris in at 22, uh, Ernie Humes driving the Bear Mobile, driving the Bear S10, also in at the split. Uh, we had a Galitti sighting at the split, but probably not the Galitti that most would assume. It wasn't Corey, it was his father, Chris, that made it mm-hmm. to the split. Um, and then, of course, 
uh, Nick Hastings, Jeff Sarah that we'd already talked about, and, and several other uh, big names at, at 22. Those were the ones that stood out to me. Another that was in that split, how about Red Hot, J.R. Barclay, or as Peter Bionda would say, Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, Jr. is on fire right now. Barclay, uh, runner-up to Spencer Massey at Bristol in the 30K that preceded the million-dollar race. Then uh, not only made it to six here at Memphis, which is his home track. Like, he knows that place like the back of his hand. No surprise to see him go deep at Memphis. Not only did it, was he deep into the split at six, Jr. was the last driver doubled. I think lost his second entry the round prior to the split. Just a really impressive Monday performance from J.R. Barclay. Yeah, no doubt. Again, he's on fire right now. And, um, you know, a guy that's done his share of winning at Memphis, really comfortable at that place and uh, was showing out. Uh, I wasn't, I, again, wasn't rooting for or against anyone, but I definitely, at, at some point there late, I felt like it was J.R.'s race. He, he just really makes solid runs, don't make a whole lot of mistakes, but. Yeah, come no, up, come no, up short to the buzzsaw. Knowing Jr. and the Barclay family for as long as I have, like that was a that was a feel good moment, a feel good story to see him go deep on that stage. I had a couple others, maybe drivers that uh, maybe aren't necessarily household names. Obviously capable. I don't think you enter that event if you're not capable. Were there was there a feel good story for you, a racer that went deep that you just couldn't help but root for? Yeah, and and you've got them on your list two of them um again barclay for me was the guy as it got late there that i i was kind of thinking you know it'd be cool because i know his dad pretty well and just a just a family that that is very highly respected in the pits and well liked and you know you just don't have anything bad to say about him so barclay for me was kind of feel good but the the ones you're about to discuss here was definitely on that list as well the two feel goods for me todd sensney who we briefly touched on earlier he was one thousandth away from being the the lead story here right runner up in the guaranteed million and I, to, to my earlier point like todd has accomplished so much in our sport um from nhra competition to big dollar bracket racing like there, it's no surprise to anybody that's raced with todd sensney that he was on that stage with that opportunity right but todd sensony just he's a guy if you know todd like i don't know anybody that doesn't like todd sensony that knows him like he's just a nope. really good down-to-earth dude unassuming humble checks all the boxes right you can't help but root for him another one for me was uh scooter hamlin a uh, young man that i uh grew up in the same area that i did he was probably about a decade behind me um always displayed immense talent um uh, just I love Scooter, his wife, his dad. Like they're they're just good people that I've known forever. That uh, I don't think like necessarily uh, makes a splash on a national stage. He doesn't travel outside of the state of Texas very often, but obviously super capable. And for him to put that on display at this stage, I believe he got down to eleven cars, got paid handsomely. But I think uh, more important for him is it would be more important to many of us just earning that respect uh, in front of a national audience. In a 650 door car, like, it's just cool. I was happy for Scooter. Yeah, a cool car on top of everything else. Uh, Scooter, a uh, uh, well-liked dude. Um, definitely one of my top five cars at the track. Uh, I got to take a peek at that wagon Friday morning. And just a really nice ride. Very clean, very well done. And Luke, you talked about the right lane being a little tight and a little slow. 
scooter had been running left lane all day, got stuck in the right at 11, went five thou red. I think the general consensus in the pits was that it was about 100. You said 7,000, so close enough, uh, about 100 tight and 100 slow. And scooter got stuck in the right, not sure he knew or got the message, um, but lit it five thou red and I think maybe even went real high dead on. So, you know, he might have had that seven or eight thou uh, bite from that lane. So that was tough to see. But Todd Sensony, uh, you know, a, a guy that, that leans on his faith very heavily, a good Christian man that just does the right things, treats people the right way, uh, races you super clean, you know, had had his opponent at, at in the semis needed to put a starter on after the burnout, Todd would have said, okay, well, let me just park over here and get cooled off and we'll redo this. I mean, he's just that kind of guy. Just You can't find anything wrong with him. And it was really cool to see him collect such a huge payday. Uh, tough to see him do it coming up short by a thou, but when it was all said and done, you know, I know that's a, a life-changing day for him and one that, that he definitely deserves. And Todd, just to just to sum up what kind of guy he is, back in my very early uh, announcing days, you know, what I did when I came on the announcing scene was a little bit different from what everybody had been here. And I, I just handled it a different way, broke it down a different way, good, bad, right or wrong. None of that really matters. I'm certainly not looking for any response to that. But just he appreciated it. He appreciated how I did it. And we were at a race together. And he did well, might have won or runnered up. And he he came up late that night and found me and handed me a fifty dollar like uh, Applebee's or Longhorn or something gift certificate or a gift card. And he said, "I just want you to take this and and I want you to know how much we appreciate uh, what you're doing and and how you're doing it because it's it's just it's pretty cool the way you break the run down and." We don't have to watch the race to understand the race. And, and uh, you know, now I'm old news and, you know, that's what a lot of announcers are doing and what people expect, which is really cool. But that's just kind of guy Todd was. I mean, he didn't owe me anything. You know, I was getting paid to be there. So uh, I was just doing the job I was supposed to do. But Todd felt like he needed to come show some appreciation from him personally. And that's how he did it was through a a gift card to go get something to eat, which, you know, I mean, it's no secret. You look at me and know me. I mean, that was the way to my heart and still is. So very good move on Todd's part, but that's just the kind of guy he is. No, 100%. That is the kind of guy he is. I've also been uh, a recipient of unexpected, uh, of an unexpected gift from Todd Sensony as well. That it said you, you summed it up well. Like that is, uh, that is who he is. And uh, like I say, to see someone like that experience success at that level, like I say, feel good story of the, of the weekend for me. Yeah. Let's briefly, Jed, revisit, uh, I guess for the third consecutive episode, some of our bold predictions <laughs> for this stretch. And we'll, we'll, we'll glaze over this because I don't want to spend too much time on it. We, we've, we're beating it to death, but it's fun. For me, I predicted West Coast presence. I said that we would have a quote-unquote West Coaster, which I, I stipulated as West of uh, the Rockies, basically in a final of one of the three quote-unquote million-dollar races. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, Shane Thompson got close at Bristol. Greg Hicks was the last left coaster standing at Bristol. I believe he lost at 11 cars. So that was my best shot. 
hopefully one of them can come through for me at the OG Million in Montgomery. Well, Luke, yes. Luke, they've gone back to Vegas now to run the Fall Fling West. Mm. You know, how many make the trip to Montgomery? That's a good point. That's uh, a good point. So your, your, your chances have probably dwindled greatly. I know that Whit has headed west. I know that uh, Hicks and Thompson have headed west. Yeah, I may not, I may not have much left. <laughs> yeah. So that one sure to go wrong. Jed, you said that the Great American Guaranteed Million would see a female winner. It was a bold prediction, but also a swing and a miss. I think that Mia Tedesco was the last hope. I believe she lost the round prior to the split. Well, Luke, I don't, I don't know big words and stuff, but like a, a premonition. Is that not like being able to, like you're getting a, a feel or a vision of the future? Yeah, like I see that, um, right? That was a premonition. Yeah. So I think mine just got a little bit cloudy because I was pretty darn close. I think I was swayed by seeing a female name on the check. It turns out somebody named Sarah did win. So I think that my premonition just got a little bit blurry because I, you know, I saw a female name on the check. So I'm going to still take credit for this one. Uh, just in Jed fashion and Homerism, whatever. But I'm going to take a little bit of credit for getting this one right. Okay, so you, you, what you're telling me is that you visualize the check. Yeah. Here yeah, the, that's what I'm saying. Visualized, S-E-R-R-A, and assume that that was a woman. Have you ever met an S-E-R-R-A Miss Sarah? Well, see, yes, where you're not giving me credit for the cloudiness that I had. I, I just, I was like, I, I was making it out. Like, I see a S and then an R and an A, and I'm like, okay, well, somebody named Sarah is winning, or some female, maybe that's her middle name. Something. I saw Sarah, some form in the, on the check. Okay, so we've established that you're a homer. <laughs> we've established that you. You want to straddle the fence like you, you always want to have 12 names in your top three. <laughs> and now we've established you're willing to take credit for, I mean, this is a pretty significant stretch of the, okay, Sarah, Sarah, but female. You know anybody that could stretch it any better than I do. I'd have never put that together. There so you I got go. it. It's pretty I've been good. thinking about that all day, brother. <laughs> One of my predictions was that at least one competitor would advance to the semis or better at two of the three millions close on this one but no cigar yet uh as i mentioned scotty coltrera nick folk all close at the great american guaranteed million none of them in the semis so as we head to montgomery i need nick folk scotty richardson kyle coltrera jeff sarah todd sensney or nick hastings to advance to the semifinals given the names I like my chances, but it's still kind of a long shot, right? As you should. I think uh, both Nick and Scotty raced very well at Montgomery. I think both of them uh, put up good numbers and good laps there. So um, you, you stand a real good shot with either of them. But the fact that there was a bottom bulb component added to the OG today by the Folk family increased your chances greatly because I'm sure Nick will have at least one of those on the bottom, if not both of his entries. So oh, you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> so 
so your your odds just got a lot better my friend well and honestly i don't you can't at this point when the money when the chips are on the table you cannot bet against jeff sarah let's not forget that not only did he just win the the biggest race of his career he was to like the last four dragsters at the sfg 1.1 he made the split at bristol he made the split at montgomery maybe it wasn't last year the year prior like he is very much making a habit of being a part of the discussion at the biggest races in the country. Yeah. Great point. All right, Jed, you said, well, Hunter Patton won't win. Okay. We, we, we've been there. We've been down that. Right. So mm-hmm. hope Hunter wins at Montgomery just because I, I, I want the shout out. You also- I'll be standing there in the winner's circle with him. So bring it Hunter. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> that would be awesome. All right. Must see TV. You all, <laughs> And I actually, I really felt like you were going out on a, on a limb here. And so far, it's proven true. You said that there would not be any repeat winners at any of the three events, including uh, the adjoin, the surrounding races. So far, you're looking good. Our winners to this point, Carolyn McCarty, Spencer Massey, Scotty Richardson from Bristol, Josh McDaniel from Bristol, Paul Rich, Peeps Pennington, Jeff Sarah from Memphis. No repeat winners yet. Nobody that's really gotten close. I would say... Uh, Jarrah Barclay is probably the, the closest thing, the runner-up in Bristol and a quarterfinal at the Million in Memphis. Can't think of anybody else that's been really deep in multiple events. Yeah, the closest other than, you know, Scotty, I guess you would consider uh, his his run in both the last two millions, obviously winning one day and going very deep, uh, what got to 11 and the, and the, the guaranteed. So I would say he, he stood the best chance. Um, and that's a talented list that has won so far. So I'm not sure I like the the odds of that happening, the no repeat winners thing, but um, I still think it's very difficult for somebody to get two of these. So I think that one's going to hold up. All right. My very last uh, like bullet point, talking point, one, something that I wanted to run by you. And this is gonna, This is probably going to catch a lot of people by surprise coming from me as i've mentioned before as i mentioned on the last episode like i was jacked up for this event like probably as fired up i looked forward to this event probably as much as i have any race in years right like this this was awesome and it was like it absolutely lived up to all of my expectations it was it was cool it was fun to be a part of it was awesome to watch loved it right in retrospect and i let me just preface this by saying like I didn't I didn't have a good million. I had a really good weekend, right? And and I actually I mentioned this off air. I don't want this to be biased to feel biased by my my personal outcome. Obviously, if I make the split the million, if I'm in the final of the million, I've got a little bit different perspective on this, right? But I'm trying to be relatively objective here. Like I was a competitor in the event, so I, I had my own skin in the game, so to speak. But I'm looking at this just from kind of the vibe that I got through the pits and the general feel around the race, in addition to my personal perspective. And I'm kind of shocked to say in retrospect, and again, this might be an unpopular opinion. I didn't enjoy the million specifically as much as I thought that I would. And I didn't enjoy racing for that kind of stakes. I didn't, I didn't love that feeling 
as much as I thought I would. And I feel like I've been in pressure situations before. Like it wasn't that. And it's obviously nothing against the event, the promoters, as we said in the intro, feel like they did an awesome job and we'll go a little bit more into some of the, the struggles that they faced and how they were over to overcome them as we go. Um, maybe a, a part of this was just this unprecedented swing and the fact that I was at Bristol and a lot of people that were at Memphis were at Bristol and or were planning on going on to Montgomery. So it's not just this one massive tab. You know, it's not just this one weekend of massive entries. Like, I feel like that elevates the, the, the tension, so to speak, the, the, the need to pay the tab to win something, you know, across the board. I just felt this tension in the air. I, again, I don't know if it was more because the purses were simply so huge. I don't know if it was more the, because the entries were so huge and there were so many back to back. I just, I felt like almost everyone across the board was just a little bit edgy, like looking for a reason to feel slighted, looking for a, 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 a reason that this wasn't as fair to them or didn't line up as well to them. Like I just, I felt like some of the fun was sucked out of it. Like it's awesome for all of the winners. It's awesome for the winner of the million. It's awesome to be just there right now. It's awesome for all of the late finishers, right? For the, the 22 that made the split, like you can't go home unhappy, right? When you make that much money. But here's the thing, like who leaves the event satisfied? other than Jeff Sarah. And I guess this is true regardless of the stakes, regardless of the level of competition, right? Like if we don't win the race, we always feel like, oh, you know, like it wasn't a great day, right? But particularly in this instance, outside of Jeff Sarah, who leaves like, man, that was awesome. I mean, Todd Sanson, he should, right? But not seeing that win light by one thousandth of a second in the final cost him over $100,000. How do you not think about that when you're... <laughs> Nick Hastings, like he literally took home the the biggest purse that a footbreak racer has ever won, probably double what a footbreak racer has ever won. But that round that he lost cost him at least a hundred thousand dollars, and potential for more if he wins the final. Like you, there's got to be an element of shoulda, coulda, woulda, and just take that down to the the quarterfinalists and the guys that just barely made the split. Like you look at that and say, wow, like what a great day. Like the, from the majority of those 22, I think it's safe to say like that's the biggest check that they've ever gotten in from a day of racing. But they know that it would have doubled with one more win light. <laughs> you know, like how many people really leave satisfied going, man, that was it. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's a question that you'll never be able to answer, obviously. But you know, I've seen a lot of people that didn't do very well at all that, that is praising uh, the guys on Facebook, as they should. They work their tails off and uh, talked about the whole experience, you know, just was amazing just being a part of it. And I think the general feeling for most everybody is that, Luke. But And that's and, – and rightfully so. Like, I think sure. – Awesome job. I guess my point is that as you elevate the stakes – there's just more losers and there's bigger losers. Like there's more tension. And I felt like there was more tension there. And again, I think there were a lot of things that went into that besides the purse. I think the calendar and having those races 
all together was a part of it. I think that the weather was part of it. And just the, the fact that you sit around for two days thinking about this massive payout and perhaps this massive tab that you have in the tower if you don't wash out, you know, I mean, I, I think that that added to it too. Um, to, let's transition over a little bit. Like I, where this manifested, I thought, like, I don't know if it was the vibe throughout the pits, but it just felt like the vibe throughout the pits was a lot of criticism, a lot of second guessing of the protest that I, again, like I just felt was largely unwarranted. Like there were, there, there seemed like there were some hiccups, right? And it seemed like a, a large number of hiccups from, for that type of event, right? Like you don't want to see anything go wrong, but things come up at every race everywhere. And as you know, Jed, as a promoter, as a, as a, uh, as a race director, there are really difficult decisions to make. I would assume at every race that you put on, have been at every race that I put on mm -hmm. decisions that you could make a logical argument on either side of, and you got to make a call, right? It's hard. And Britain Gaylord are no different, but when the purse is $1.2 million plus, every one of those decisions is under such a microscope. Like it just, we talked about this off air. It cannot be any fun to manage that event. Like I, I would assume it's lucrative. I hope it's lucrative. They earned it, but it cannot be fun. No, it's, it's, I mean, the fun gets gone way before you ever get there. <laughs> Cause it's, as you know, it's a grind. It's, it's a grind. You, you eat up a lot of family time, a lot of personal time, and you spend time asking sponsors for support and racers to show up. And, you know, you, you just hope it all comes together. And this event looked absolutely perfect. And then you get there and all these weather challenges and, and things throwing them curveballs. I mean, I felt terrible for Britt and Galen and their team. That was that was the the most devastating blow because of when it happened. You know, you could deal with 12 to 20 hours of rain if it happens early in the week or it's going to happen to end things. But happening and just destroying what everyone was there for and you having to, to make all those adjustments, them having to make all those adjustments, it, it was, you know, extremely difficult decisions for them and, and and i commend them for for making some and sticking with them part of that weather wise that i think gets glossed over like in the leading up to okay the 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 hurricane and the remnants of the hurricane are coming in and that's going to affect us and we've got to try to make the best decision that we can what i i think it's glossed over in that is the fact that in addition to putting on the you know one of the two biggest races of the year the the biggest race of their promoting career uh, an almost unprecedented payout for each of us as racers, in addition to trying to make the best decision for that with the, the weather coming in, keep in mind that the freaking hurricane is hitting where they live and they're not there. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine the stress of that they're dealing with just from a race director standpoint, and then you pile that on top of it? Like, I just can't imagine. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't even considering that at, at the time I was talking about. That's uh, even more devastating. So uh, back to the, the, the hiccups, like it seemed like everything got magnified and there were some, some goofs, right? But they were just human error. Like there was a, a round that I would assume the starter, either starter or the tower didn't engage the, 
the auto start, right? So there was a super long tree. There was a round where there's the wrong dial ins around the scoreboard. There's a round that has just been absolutely beaten to death on social media. If you if you want if you want some entertainment, find Steve Law's post and all of the related comments, my goodness, right, about a, a timing system issue or a, a, an odd run uh, from second round, I think, of the million. Um, there, was, there was an issue, thankfully not in the million, um, but in, I think it was the 80 grander, where a, a driver is actually in a case, things was doubled, and the, the staging crew, it's, it slipped their mind. Like, they, raced, they, they, let, they let Austin Richardson have the buy without him. Right, and then had to come back and rerun that round. So there were hiccups, and in a vacuum, yes, those are problems that probably shouldn't happen, particularly at a race of that magnitude. But they're just honest mistakes by human beings. They're they're mistakes happen at ninety five percent of the races I've ever been to that I don't even realize happen because I don't care when we're racing for thousand bucks. Everybody cares when racing for a million bucks. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yes, my point is that every little thing is under a microscope. And I just, uh, I can't imagine, I I realize that's what you sign up for, you know, as the, as the promoter or race director of a race like that, but I just can't imagine the stress of it. Well, the stress is, uh, is something that, you know, is based on your level of care. Uh, so there, I've been to races where promoters, you know, okay, so what? It's raining, or so what? We we had this little hiccup, or so what? But um, you know, when your level of care is very high, and Britt and Galen have a, an extremely high level of care, you know, they they their character is is on display at their events. Their their hard work is showing their integrity. So you know, anytime you feel like that any of that could be compromised based on a decision you make. It makes the decision more grueling and and very much harder to make. I've been there. I've lived it, and I still live it every year. Um, so those guys probably had a lot of internal battles with some of the decisions they made. But in the end, when you've got great character and, and high integrity and good values and morals, you know, ultimately, you just have to get comfortable with your decision and know that you're doing the best you can. And I think every decision they make, they made, and every decision I've ever seen them make is is based on those things. And they do an extremely good job of being fair and equal. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to turn this into a, a love fest for Britain Galen. I do think <laughs> they do a very good job. Uh, I just feel like, you know, everybody was looking for a reason to be slighted and a lot of things got magnified. And what I don't, re- I didn't really hear anyone talking about was one thing that they did that was awesome. That, like I say, just kind of seemed to get swept under the rug. Okay, so the events were, were oversold, right? It was a 450 car max. And overselling a, of, a, of a pre-entry event is a pretty common thing in the business, Jed, right? Like you, what you don't want as a promoter is a, a race based on 450 entries. Inevitably, the week of, the couple weeks of, there's some turnover and you have, you know, 435 show up. Well, in this particular event, if you're 15 cars short, like that's, I don't know, $60,000, $70,000, right? You need a full 450. So they oversold, and then most of the, the entrants showed up. They had like 470, 480 in, in each of the events. I, in the million, I'm sure, again, there's enough of a microscope. Like People would have realized, hey, there was more than 450 cars went down first round. 
in the first 40 grander, I had no idea. There was 470 something that went down first round. Like you, you could have told me that there was 400. You could have told me there was 500. I'm like, yeah, whatever. We're down to 11 now. Right. Well, we got down to 11 cars, seventh round. And Galen just walks into the staging lanes, gathers everybody up and says, Hey guys, look, uh, we had more than 450 entries. So we just put all that money back into the purse. You've got $6,000 available that wasn't on the flyer, you know, in addition to the guaranteed purse. I, I know that's happened before. Like we talked about, uh, I think the ultimate 64 did something similar to this year. I don't remember ever going to a race one spring fling years ago where they just added to the purse out of like unannounced. That was pretty cool. And it wasn't just that race. They added six grand to that 40 grander that doubled in the 80 grander. I think there was roughly $12,000 added to the purse. And then in the million, uh, obviously just the quick math tells you that there were 22 entries over the 450. And it's $66,000 to the purse. Uh, that doesn't happen. And it's one of those things that they, they did. It's the right thing to do. It was an awesome thing to do for the racers. And I just don't hear everybody talking about that. And I feel like that is a credit for it. Yeah, ironically, the, the purse was split at 22 cars. And there were 22 extra. So, you know, that group got an extra $66,000 to work with. Because it was put on top. So, I mean, while that can get lost in a in a one point two million dollar split, that's a lot of freaking money, and that increased quite a few people's payday. It would have been very easy to just slide that sixty six thousand dollars in your pocket and keep it quiet. Very it's probably questions it at some point, but it's probably not a big deal, you know. Yep, so. I agree. One other thing that I think they deserve kudos about, and I'm, and I'm anxious to hear your feedback because obviously being at the event, I, I caught bits and pieces of the PA announcement. I didn't really catch much of the live feed broadcast, but my impression of it was off the charts and all of the feedback that I've heard from people watching at home was this was arguably the best live feed production that we've ever seen. Yeah, I agree. Uh, those guys did a phenomenal job. It, you know, it certainly was a great idea first and foremost, but then to have such a polarizing guy leading it in Clay Milliken, you know, a top fuel professional racer that's handling live feed introduction. I mean, uh, uh, interviews and sponsor stuff at, you know, a bracket race. It's like, well, how cool is that? And, you know, it wasn't clay wasn't lost he wasn't lost in the moment he he was great with the microphone in his hand he knew the competitors he understands he's a sportsman racer at heart so he understands the strategies and the and what guys are you know doing with moving the dialing up moving it down how they can spray and he gets all that so it, my point is that you know he he was just one of us he wasn't he wasn't a top fuel guy on the mic lost in a in a big time bracket race he blended in so well and jake did a wonderful job working with him and when jake was working solo he did a great job um i'll tell you luke from being involved in some production stuff on live feeds those transitions can be challenging it's sometimes difficult to get everybody on the same page and get your timing right those guys seem to do it just about flawlessly which is very hard to do and they did it so often too probably perfected it as they went but to the 
to the untrained eye, it, it really looked seamless what they were getting done. And I thought it was very cool the way they had so many racers involved, whether you were winning big money or you're just in the pits about to go do your thing or in the lanes about to go do your thing. So excellent, excellent job by everybody involved. It's pretty incredible how quickly the quality of the live feed broadcast is elevated. And you've been a big part of that, Jed. And the, I think uh, I think Kyle and Pete took it to a new level when you guys started doing the post-race interviews late in the race. And I think this was the next step. Like, I loved how they had the majority of the late round finishers at the million on after the fact to kind of tell their story. You know, I, I mean, mm-hmm. and then to have Clay hosting it essentially, you know, or, or I say, you know, Gleghorn and, and Jake are doing their thing and then Clay's kind of the color guy. Like you can't have better color commentary than what Clay Milliken provides to, to, to all the points that you mentioned earlier. Like just the overall uh, viewing experience seemed incredible. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, I thought that the race was awesome to be a part of, but my impression is that the race was awesome to watch from the comfort of your own home. And just as a guy, like five years ago, I had denounced the live feed stuff. I'm like, I would rather watch paint dry. Like it just didn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. And the production value of this, like it's amazing. Like how do you, as a racer, how do you not watch that unfold and be completely engaged? Yeah. I don't think there's any way you couldn't enjoy what they were doing and, as you mentioned, uh, Ryan Gleghorn, uh, Ryan's not a real excitable guy. He's called a lot of laps, and he rides around a bunch doing these races. But you could tell as that thing started winding down, he was getting super excited. Just a big moment, and those guys handled it extremely well. You know, A lot of that is on Mark and Joanne and their team, too, with Motormania TV. Uh, you know, they, they are faced with some... Uh, some logistical challenges when it's when you're doing those transitions and bouncing back and forth and making sure that people are seeing exactly what you want them to see exactly when you want to see it all that sounds real easy to us but it isn't easy and they they, them and their team did a great job as well i I want to circle back just a little bit on the the uh how difficult it is to to make those decisions as a promoter i don't want to harp on this too much but I'll just say, I feel like having been in that situation and then having watched it as a racer and have, uh, I feel like promoter bias is, we all say like, oh, they're, they're biased because they're biased. Like, that's inevitable. Let's picture this, Jed, because I know you've lived it. Two racers come to you on opposite sides of a, of a run, let's say, you know, something that's in question. And they both have a, you know, what on the surface would be a, a valid argument. It's impossible not to side with the one that you think is the better racer. Like you just believe what they're telling you. Like I, you don't, and you don't get past that. You don't know exactly what happened. So you're taking the word of the, the, the racer that you trust or the racer that you think like can legitimately tell you what happened on the racetrack. Like you, you can't avoid that. And I think it's, if there, to the extent that there is a quote unquote problem with the, you know, like a bi racers, four racers event that have become so popular, the difficulty of that from a promoter standpoint is that you know all of these people. Like they are your customers. They're also your friends by and large. And they're fellow racers. So you understand the the plight. And to have to make those decisions that literally like you can see both sides, you can see both arguments. And you know you're gonna piss somebody off, right? Like it's just it's hard to do. 
and you have to take sides. My point again, like in that the bias is inevitable. Like you can say it's because you believe your buddy or whatever. Like there's just two sides. You're gonna go with the racer that you. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily impact your decision in the way that like you're going to side with the racer that you trust, or you're going to side with the racer that's the better racer. But I'm just telling you, two racers could come to me with the exact same problem, and if one of them Scotty Richardson and one of them's Joe Dirt, like I'm going to believe what Scotty said. You know, yeah, it, it's, it's totally understandable. It's but it's I can say that out loud because you you realize that when you step back, and it's not necessarily fair, but I think it's inevitable. So I guess the perception that I felt like I got from racers about Britt and Galen specifically, m- more so about Britt, was that like, oh, you know, like he's going to side with his buddies, right? And I will say, like, I feel like it, having, I'll just take my relationship with the Cummings, right, with Britt and Slate, because when I first met them, I didn't like them at all. I've, I've told you, I've, I've shared that on the podcast. I thought, man... <laughs> those guys and and they seemed clickish and i'm like well they're part of the in crowd and i'm not part of the in crowd and then i got to know them and they're like salt of the earth they're freaking awesome right ah, I, I won't speak for slate like that now i'm giving slate a hard time <laughs> no good dudes right and absolutely well-intentioned so when it comes down to like well, i seem to get a lot of like the the main run in question was between steve law who's another salt of the earth guy and Todd Ewing, Bones, who we both know, right? Good friends. Sure. And it, I just feel like the underlying assumption is like, well, Bones is part of the in. That's part of that's Britt's buddy. And I just, I just don't think that that's the case. And they they lend themselves to that because it's easy to say like that's the that's I guess the trouble with the biracers fourth racers like you're part of the in group. And, and the Cummings are very much part of the in-group and they're going to get the favoritism. When, again, I think you would look at that situation and any of these situations that have been in question and make a really valid argument either way. And ultimately, you've got to make a decision. And I don't think that, that uh, like who you are or the perception of who you are played into those decisions. No. There's, uh, I actually spoke with Galen today and um, he he was just bending my ear about a few things. And I can tell you with 100% confidence that the difficult decisions that they were faced with had nothing to do with who was involved, uh, whatever decision they made. And, you know, just to show that, uh, I mean, uh, AJ was involved in a, in a difficult uh, situation that Galen had to make a decision on. And, Galen and AJ are very close. I mean, they live in the same area of the country. They have known each other for, I mean, I don't know, 25 years, maybe 30. I don't know, but it's been a long, long time. And AJ has raced with Galen quite a bit and supported him a lot at Gulfport Dragway. And uh, AJ, you know, it did not side on AJ's side when the decision was made. So I think that, if anybody knew what happened there and, you know, I won't get into what I think or who was right or who was wrong. I'm not sure Galen could have made a right or a wrong decision there. Just make the best he can make, but it did not go AJ's way. And if there was any kind of bias or click whatsoever, that would have easily been in AJ's favor. So, um, tough situation. I know AJ wasn't happy and, uh, you know, I'm sure I wouldn't have been either. So, um, just proven that that those guys had no no uh, 
relationship bias when they were making tough calls. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm getting at is it's it's difficult. Those are really, really hard decisions because, again, you can make a value yes. way. And the perception is always going to be that there's some bias involved, right? That there's that there you're you're siding with your buddy or whatever the case may be. Um, the one promoting tandem that seems to transcend that is is Pete and Kyle. And again, I don't think that the decision is any different for them. I just I feel like the perception is a little bit different, and maybe it's because. Kyle Seipel is one of the few individuals, like it literally feels like he's friends with everyone at the track and doesn't have like, you know what I mean? Doesn't just have a group that he hangs out with. Like he's, he, he, I feel like he knows everybody by their first name. And then Peter's like the opposite in that he, he doesn't seem like he gets close to anyone. So it seems as though they're, I don't know, like somehow more removed from making that, that, that unbiased decision when in reality, like it's the exact same thing. It, it's just, it, it's an interesting dynamic. I was thinking about that going home. I don't know if that even makes any sense, but they're, they are obviously racers, um, you know, putting on events for racers, but it feels like they are somehow removed from that um, judgment, if that makes sense. I get that completely. And I think you, you described them to a T, you know, Kyle seems to be buddies and, hangs out with everybody at the pits. It, it feels like he spends time with every single person in the pits on the weekend, which is impossible to do, obviously. He feels but, that. And, you know, and Peter just seems engulfed with his everyday life, raising small children and uh, helping run family business and flying all over the country and putting on races. He, he just seems like he, he don't even have time to be friends with anybody. So I, I understand exactly how you how you feel when you describe that and I say summed it up really well. Uh, the, the, I'll just kind of circle back to my uh, initial topic here that, you know, for, for a variety of potential reasons, like I don't even know that I can put my thumb on it. Like this just wasn't as fun of experience for me personally as, as I thought it would be. And I, and I got that vibe from several people in, in the, in the pits. I will say, and I was, I was really disappointed like this and it was not, field wide by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm really not even thinking of a, of a single event. I just got this vibe. Like there was more of a win at all costs feel than I can really ever remember in racing before. And again, like that was disappointing. I thought inevitably we would see some crazy staging shenanigans, like run rampant throughout the weekend. That doesn't, wasn't really the case. I saw a couple where that just kind of made me chuckle. Like, um, but the staging games weren't ridiculous and, and, and weren't out of hand. Um, I, I felt like there was less of a, uh, of a tendency to like, oh, uh, my opponent's car won't start. Like, let's just sit and wait for him. Like, it was more like, oh, can I get a single? Because like, you know, <laughs> just because just you just know like this round's worth $3,000 or $5,000 or whatever, right? Um, I saw a lot, and I th this was kind of bizarre because I haven't, I, I don't feel like this has been an issue in two decades. But I, I saw in the opposite lane in a couple of instances and just, just watching from underneath the tower, like I saw a lot of late dial-in changes, like rolling under the tower dial-in changes that that's not been a thing since like the eighties. Like, what are we doing there? You know, um, I saw a lot of like uh, lane swapping, you know, late in, in, in lane swapping in line, like, Oh, I don't want to run that guy dive out of line. Like, eh, 
you just don't see a ton of that at other races. And I just felt like with the elevated stakes, again, it wasn't field wide. I just thought it, it didn't have as good a look as I would have hoped. Yeah. And you know, I was basically a, an online spectator, um, having, uh, having to come home because of the job and not being able to compete. I knew I wouldn't be able to be there into Monday. So no point in me getting started on Sunday. Um, had I won, you know, that round or something, I would have made a, a worse decision and uh, affected a lot of things at work. So I had to come home and, uh, you know, I didn't get to see a lot of that behind the scenes stuff. So really don't know. I'll take your word for that. But um, definitely with those stakes that high, Luke, you know, I think people aren't themselves. And whatever happened that was a little bit abnormal for uh, any event, much less a high stakes event, probably had a lot to do with that investment people were making. You know, it's that does sway our judgment a lot of times. Uh, it's hard not to think about that tab when it's, you know, especially when you got a couple of shots at 3,000 a pop. So I think that probably had a major effect on how people handle a lot of situations. Yeah. Now, big picture, I don't. I'm not predicting or or uh, assuming that races of this magnitude are going away by any means. Like, I, I think we're at the tip of the iceberg. I just, uh, for whatever reason, like I say, I'm trying to put my finger on it exactly. Like, I'm just not as big a fan of competing for that kind of money as I, as I assume that I would be. So, for what that's worth. And I can't, and I, I mean, I was done early. Like, I, I we talked about this a little bit off air. I would like to think that I would be able to compartmentalize and perform at say six cars in the million, but there is no way that I would not be staging and think one win light for 50 grand. Like I just, yeah. You know, I mean, no, I could not think about that myself. I mean, on one hand it's awesome, but my goodness, that's a, I just never dreamed that that much money would hinge on the outcome of, you know, what essentially in a lot of cases tends to be a coin flip, like one out, one round of racing. Like it's, it's just insane. It's different. And uh, maybe it'll become the new normal. Like I say, I just, uh, I just had this feeling that I would get there and it would just be intoxicating and I would want to do it again next week. Like I don't want to do it again next week. So <laughs> I'm sure I'll do it again someday, but uh, yeah, I'm going to wait two weeks before I do it again. <laughs> really only one more from this point. <laughs> uh, all right. So We've spent over an hour, shoot, an hour and a half talking about the Great American Guaranteed Million, uh, and rightfully so. There was some other racing on the schedule last week. Um, we've got an NHRA coming, NHRA heavy show coming soon, probably next week. That's probably the natural spot in the calendar to, uh, to do that. I'll reach out to Kevin McKenna, see if he will come on with us next week to, uh, to kind of recap and preview, recap the season to this point, preview the championship chases in each of the NHRA sportsman categories, it's time to nerd out. Um, but a couple of interesting notes from uh, a handful of events on the NHRA side over the weekend. Division four finale at Noble, Oklahoma. Division seven doubleheader out in Phoenix. Uh, interesting notes. James Kunkel strikes again. <laughs> you may Uncle James, I love it. You may remember Kunk won both ends of the doubleheader at Topeka in Supercomp in a door car with a top end throttle stop. It wasn't a one-off thing by any, I mean, he, he doubled up. So it was literally two races in one weekend. He did it again. Uh, Kunkel wins super comp at Noble, Oklahoma. 
Um, again, with the top end stop, really in impressive fashion. Uh, he put on the scoreboard 890 or 891 every single lap at 120 something. Uh, James Kunkel has channeled something between his inner Chris Gerritsen for the top stop and his inner, um, I don't know, Ken Mostowich, uh, Daryl Goza, maybe, for a super competent door car. That was actually, I meant to trivia time you, Jed, and I didn't do my research. I want to know, because Kunk now, with this win, has a shot to win the world championship and is almost certain of a top 10 finish in Supercomp in a door car with a top-end throttle stop. And my question for you, my trivia time was going to be, and I haven't done the research, is who was the last driver to finish in the top 10 in the NHRA Supercomp standings, national standings, with a door car? I think it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would. Uh, I could sit here and guess the rest of the night, Luke, and, uh, and couldn't even get close. So... The names that came to mind, I, I know my buddy Daryl Goza did it, but it's been 20-plus years ago. I, would, I think someone's probably done it since then. I would assume Mostowich has done it just because he's raced a door car and Supercomp at a high level for a number of years. I think more of his uh, national success has come in Supergas. I don't want to say he's been top 10 in Supercomp. Um, and then um, Jimmy Lewis, I think, one year. Shoot, this is back when I was a kid, too. It seems like he ran a Trans Am in Supercomp and had success. I want to say he was top 10. I'm probably missing an obvious one that was more recent, but I'm thinking like it may be two decades ago that someone's done what James Kunkel's doing and not in the manner that Kunkel's doing it. <laughs> no, nobody's doing it in the manner Kunkel's doing it, so um, I'm not doubting that. Uh, it was really cool to see that, that he's got it done again. So if you remember, I know you do, and if the listeners remember... Our uh, hashtag loyal listeners have listened to all shows, but uh, in the interview, he, he let us know that that was the first time he had ever even done it. Like the, the, the time trial he made was the first time he had ever even tried that. So and he goes on and wins a double, and now he, he has uh, struck again. So if you were trying to run 890 or 990 at Noble, Oklahoma, without a top-end throttle stop, that was almost as futile as trying to win a million dollar race in 2020 without a six second Chevy two. Because <laughs> yeah. not really. James Kunkel went supercom. Tim Nicholson wins gas top end stop. Nicholson's wins even cooler because he was banging gears prior to the stop closing. Yeah, Nicholson's. If you say nobody's doing it like Kunkel, that's probably true. It's. There's nobody doing it like Tim Nicholson. <laughs> that is true. And, and Tim's been in that same car for, I don't even, you probably know how long, but it's been a long time. I know, I mean, I've shared it here on the podcast before. I ran Tim Nicholson in the final round at Arc City, and I was 17. I'm 39, and he was in that same green America, pulling them same levers, and he did beat the hell out of me. <laughs> uh, so. I noticed, and I don't really, I don't have the backstory. Obviously, I was immersed in um, the Great American Million throughout the week, as, as were you. Um, I don't know if weather played a role in this or what. The car count at Noble was putrid. Like, every, every class was five rounds. You don't see that at an NHRA division race outside of Division Six often at all. Uh, so I don't know if that, if that was a unique situation or if that speaks to 
more to the current state of NHRA sports and racing? Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess that would have to become more of a trend to be alarming. I just thought it was odd to see round five final in all of the sportsman categories. Um, in addition to Noble, as I said earlier, double divisional out West in Phoenix, Arizona. The only real notable um, performance that I had there, how about Mike Boehner? Won Supergas not only in the first event, but also in the second event, double up for uh, your reigning Division 7 champion in Supergas, Mr. Mike Boehner. And in a year where obviously the, the point situation has gotten kind of flipped upside down and jumbled, um, Boehner's been on the road. He hasn't really put together a lot of stellar performances, but just on the strength of two wins and how wide open Supergas is, like he's got a legitimate shot to win the world championship. Um, so like I say, Kevin and I will, will dive deeper into that next week and in, in all of the classes. Um, but, uh, it is literally a year where if you string together, let's say three finals, like you have a very legitimate shot to win the championship. So Boehner throws his name, throws his hat in that ring immediately. Yeah. I'd like to see, uh, Mike do well. Hopefully he's, uh, he can continue on his march, to try to win that championship or at least make a great run at it. Uh, back in our early days in the show when we did heavy results, you know, I called him Mike Boner quite a bit and, um, you know, got finally got corrected that it's Boehner. Um Doesn't spell anywhere close to that, but, you know, close enough. If it's Boehner, it's Boehner. But Mike's my dog. So, you know, I, I've got to wear lately on the mic um, if somebody comes up and, they're one of my dogs. I, you know, I just let people know that's my dog. And so Mike's one of my dogs. So really proud of Mike and a great job on that double and hope to see him continue on his march to get that national championship. Go dogs. <laughs> yeah. Go dogs is popular saying right now. Let's hope they're not saying it much on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Alabama, Georgia. It's a big deal. It okay. doesn't matter this week. Uh, like I said, hopefully uh, have Kevin McKenna on next week to uh, to dive a little bit deeper in the NHRA stuff. Uh, it's getting really interesting. There's a lot on the line this weekend. National event in Dallas. Points meet in Rockingham. Uh, I don't know with what's still on the table. I don't think that anything will necessarily be settled or clinched this weekend, but I think it's very possible that either or both of those races go a long way to determining the champions. Jed, I'm tired of talking. We've talked Memphis. We've talked a little bit of NHRA. You got anything else before we wrap this up? Luke, I don't have anything. Um, we've talked about everything that mattered in the last few days of racing, last seven days of racing, and um, it was awesome. The, the Great American Guaranteed Million was, uh, was a heck of an event, and to think that we're wrapping up a season that paid over $1, over $1 million dollars and two events to the winners is incredible. 1.1 million at the SFG, 1.066 at the guaranteed. I mean, it, it's unbelievable what has happened in this pandemic to think that not only we get to have these events because of all the restrictions and guidelines and all the things that we've battled all year, but you have them at a very successful rate. The SFG 1.1 was very successful. Then the Bristol, uh, you know, fall fling, spring fling million, very successful. The guaranteed million successful. 
And I'm very hopeful to see that continue for the folk family in Montgomery at the OG Million. It's the it's the million that you know some of the biggest names in racing are on the the winners list. It's the 25th anniversary, Luke. Uh, it's you know it's the one you want to win. Although you want to win any of them and all of them, this is the one that people have a have 25 years of dreaming about winning which makes it that much more special. So I'm hoping everyone shows up to the OG in Montgomery next week and the folk family has a really big crowd and great weather and let's wrap this season up in style with another huge winner and something to talk about on this Deadbeat podcast. I'm on record saying they're going to have a huge crowd in the 50s, so prove me right. Yes, I hope you're right. So that wraps us up, guys. Uh, it's been great talking to you about racing. We want to thank our great sponsors that helped bring the show to you. Certainly hope you look to them early and often when you're updating your hot rod, whatever products and services they offer. Please look to them and support them the way they support us. And, uh, you know, definitely want you to reach out to Luke and I and producer Mark through the social media channels. You can message us right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. Or you can make a post for everyone to see. We like those too. Try to try to respond to those, and uh, love to see people put some information out there about what they liked about the shows, what they didn't like, or what you want to see, what you don't want to see, or hear, or whatever. Just reach out and let us know you're listening. And um, like I said, we're very active on Twitter. Luke's on there probably every couple hours. I'm on there every couple weeks. So reach out to us, tag us, bag us, add us, whatever you do on Twitter. Uh, I am uh, at JP11X. Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. We'd love to hear from you on both of those social media outlets. And Luke, it's shouts time. I don't know if you even have any shouts. I mean, if Mike Boner's not getting a shout, he needs one. Shouts to Chris Gerritsen and his front wheels that somehow ended up on Nick Hastings' T-1000. Shouts to <laughs> J.R. Barclay, a.k.a. J.R. Beckley. Thank you. Shout to you saying that a two-tone green Chevy 2 is one of the nicest cars at the racetrack. It is a really slick car, but it's not <laughs> often that you pick out the two-tone green and me right. <laughs> um, shouts to, Jed, your premonition and you taking credit for calling Jeff Sarah's victory because... You said that a female would win, and Sarah is technically a female. Yeah. So, <laughs> Nailed it. Shouts to, uh, what is it, the sixth sense? I don't know if anybody, if any of our listeners even caught that. Like, you said premonition, and I, and I kind of whispered, I see that. Because that's what I think of when I thought of <laughs> premonition. Um, that was Bruce Willis in that movie, wasn't it? I mean, the, the, the line came from the kid that was, like, four years old. But, yeah. Okay. Um, shouts to uh, your use of the word polarizing to describe Clay Milliken. I only say that because that is absolutely something that I would do, Jed. Like, I just I, I got it from you. I tend to latch on to big words and be like, yeah, and I'll just say I'm like, that sounds like it belongs there. Milliken is the opposite of polarizing, right? Like, polarizing is someone that you either love or you hate. Everyone loves Clay. Clay is engaging. He's not polarizing. But yeah, so I, I got that word from you, hearing you describe people so much over these 200 shows, and I thought it fit, so, you know, I, I apologize, I, I misuse words a lot. So, I, that's why it resonated with me. Yeah, I, I apologize, he is very engaging. I like to, I like to sound smart, so sometimes... <laughs> 
and I'm like, yeah, that fit, right? And then somebody somewhere along the line will be like, dude, he doesn't even know what that word means. So, Stop, drop and roll, Luke. You're on fire. Shouts to Mike Boehner, a.k.a. Mike Boner. You know, we couldn't miss that one. Jed, shouts to us, man. 200 episodes. Shouts to producer Mark. Thank you uh, for, for being a part of this. This has been fun. Um, I never thought we'd get to 200. Shouts to you. Larry, whether this is your first episode or your 200th, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for making this happen. And uh, this has been good. Yeah, man. It's been a blast. And uh, definitely uh, since it's show 200 and we just got a text, you and I got a text from uh, from somebody that just got to our uh, top five sayings on the back of cars episode. Um, <laughs> it's show 200. So shouts to the Muff Doctor. Uh, that wraps us up, guys. It's been a pleasure. You know, I don't want to talk about that any further. It's been a pleasure talking to you all about uh, sportsman drag racing and whatever else bullcrap come out of our mouth. Um, 200 shows has been awesome. Luke, never would have dreamed if you had told me after that triple zero that we were going to do 20. I would have told you that was 19 too many. But we're at 200, and uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe there's 200 more in us. You never know. You never know. Guys, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. And we look forward to getting back with you. Luke will be with uh, Kevin next week, probably talking some NHRA stuff. And he'll uh, nerd out on that, as he says. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be back with you guys talking about the OG, talking about the uh, original million-dollar race. Look forward to talking about the results there. Until then, have fun, be safe, stay healthy. And we'll see you next time on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. Jed and I are proud to partner with Bill Taylor Enterprises. That's BTE here within the podcast. Neither of us, Jed or myself, are strangers to BTE products, services, or customer service. I've personally been using BTE transmissions and converters exclusively since 1998. Um, that's 20 years. BTE has quite literally powered every race, every championship, every round that I've won for my entire adult life. My point, they build products that I depend on. BTE builds products that Jed depends on. BTE builds products that you can depend on. Whether it's a complete top dragster or, or top sportsman power glide transmission, a torque converter designed for your specific combination, or any transmission component or bolt-on item, the folks at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed in today's ultra-competitive world of sportsman drag racing. Shop online at BTE Racing. Com. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And, and, and you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing uh, our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest uh, edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. Tired of struggling on the tree? Let's face it, in this day and age, technology and sportsman bracket racing has come so far that our cars are not often the weak link in our program. I know they're not the weak link in mine. I am. Specifically, our reaction time typically varies far more than our car's performance. So how can you improve on the starting line? 
Thankfully, thisisbracketracing.com has you covered. We have combined 10 of our most useful, most impactful lessons into one incredible Reaction Time Master Course. Again, that's 10 individual lessons, more than 90 minutes of instructions. Normally, this is a $110 value. It's yours today for the Master Course price of just $49. Check it out at thisisbracketracing.com slash let go. Yeah, okay, thisisbracketracing.com slash let go. It's not, I'm not putting you on the couch. It's not a counseling session to let go of your inner demons. It's just about letting go when the damn light comes on. This is bracketracing.com slash let go. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.